tonight, uh, Clifton will be preaching in Colossians 3, picking up where we left off last time when um, you guys got to hear from Evan. I was so sad to miss it. Um, so the text is um, verses three, or chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Um, but I'm going to start reading from uh, verse 5. Um, so Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Awesome. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, uh, every time we come here today as we look at Colossians and we spend um, our time wanting to learn from your word, um, we pray that the same three things would be clear uh, and true in us every time, that we would see you more nearly, that we would love you more dearly, and that we would walk with you more nearly. Um, let that uh, be our takeaway today, that we might see how amazing you are and how good it is to be in relationship with you um, and how amazing it is going to be when your kingdom comes again. That's what we pray for today. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So you guys know I'm from Canada, and every time I can think of Canada as possible, I want to mention it, because I love Canada. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, and I grew up going to this tiny, uh, not amazing, but when I was a kid, amazing theme park. And my favorite thing at this theme park ever uh, was this roller coaster called uh, the Corkscrew. Uh, we may end up having a picture. If not, we'll see. There it is. That's the corkscrew. So you can see I found a little Google image of, of the corkscrew uh, ride over on the right side there. For me, when I was eight years old, it took me probably an entire day to work up the courage to go on the corkscrew. And that ride paid off with the time I wasted so amazingly that it ended up being my standard of what fun was for like years of my life. For years of my life, every time I did something fun, I asked myself, am I having more fun right now than when I was on the corkscrew? 
Um, however, when I got older, as you can see, because I'm physically before you, I came to Southern California, land of the free, home of the really sick roller coasters. And there were a lot of challenges to how fun I thought fun could be. And that is because I started going to theme parks here. And you can't tell, but this roller coaster is actually much smaller than most of the roller coasters at Six Flags and at uh, Knott's Berry Farm, all of these ones. And that blew my expectation up as to how much fun I could have in a single sitting. My view of fun was completely shattered. When we think of that, or if you think of that, and you think of the Christian life, there is something about the Christian life that should change the way that you view the rest of life dramatically. And I think I can explain to you what I mean in a single verse. And that verse is Psalm 34, verse 8. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you want to understand that verse, what that verse is really saying is what we've been trying to get at in Colossians, which is this. You've never known good until you've met God. And you've never met how good God is until you've met Jesus Christ. Christ changes everything. A person's view of reality and all meaning in this world shatters completely when they come to Christ. It is rebuilt and then remade into something so much more glorious. And that's because we used to live in this world and our desire was to try and make things better. Better for us, better for others around us, better than the world. But if we were honest, we would start noticing more of the brokenness and twistedness of this world. And if we were even more honest, we would know that we're actually a part of it. And so looking outside of us, we were looking all over the place to try and figure out how this world could get any better. And nothing compared until we finally met Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, believers stopped building their own little kingdoms, trying to make things better, and they started looking at the better kingdom that Christ has promised to bring. That is what it means to be a Christian, to look at Christ and to see that he's bringing a new heavens and a new earth, and to be fully confident of that because we've received a taste of it through the gospel. We've received a taste of it through his word, and now we know without a doubt that we are living for his kingdom and not this one. And that's really what Paul's goal was when he was writing this letter to the Colossians that we've been in. Paul is writing to the Colossians because they lost sight of Christ and his kingdom and the significance of that. And they lost sight of that because false teachers had come into the church, and they began teaching that the important part of religion and spiritual living was rules and rituals. They were what was important. So Paul had to redirect them because this deceit was leading them on a dangerously short path towards losing Christ, and that meant losing everything, all significance, all joy, everything. And so Paul needed to start really back at the beginning, and what it means to go back to the beginning is to write this letter and explain to them their union with Christ. Because it's through union with Christ that you can not only know Christ and understand satisfaction and purpose and meaning, but then you can live in his kingdom. 
Paul explained that in the very first chapter of Colossians in verse 13 and 14 when he said, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Christ, the beloved son of God. Even though Christ's kingdom is going to be fully revealed one day, we understand the kingdom is coming. And in a sense, Paul is trying to say, you can live like you're in the kingdom now. You can live like you're in heaven right now. Not because the kingdom has been fully revealed, but because the king is reigning over your heart. And Paul explained that really when he's getting into chapter 3. This is what chapter 3 is all about. The switch is now looking at you and your life. And Paul explaining in the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3, you can see the kingdom, you can see Christ, and therefore you should live like you're in the kingdom. And then he moved on to verse 5 in chapter 3. And verse 5, all the way down to verse 14, this massive chunk of chapter 3, is all about you putting on kingdom clothes. It's about putting off all of these things that are unlike Christ the King and putting on all of these things that are like Christ the King. That is what believers are called to do. And the reality that Paul is really going to bring home today is that that reality is not just something that changes you. If it is collectively changing all of us as Christians, it's supposed to change our whole church. This reality changes what the church looks like. What Paul has been working towards in chapter 3 is that the church should be a taste of the kingdom. The church should be a taste of the kingdom. It is a preview of everything God is going to do perfectly one day because it started through us living out the gospel truths of Christ. Remember all of the sins that were listed in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 3. All those sins could be summed up with four, basically sexual immorality, selfishness, anger, and sinful speech. You know, all of those sins are sins that destroy relationships, and those are sins that don't have love in them. They're anti-love. But most importantly, all of those sins make believers look totally unlike Christ, and they make the church totally unlike what the kingdom is going to be one day. That's why Paul mentions those sins. And then when he gets to verses 12 to 14, he mentions all these sins that are intermingled, that are all collected up by one, which is love. And that's because that is a representative of what the kingdom is going to look like. It is going to be a place where peace and justice and humility and love and forgiveness all reign because Christ is king. And that's what we need to look at today because that's what we need to be involved in today. The church is supposed to be a miniature reflection of the kingdom of Christ. And that brings joy and peace and purpose to your life. And it helps you bring that to other people's lives. Especially believers who need to remember the kingdom always to remember what life is about. But also for those people outside the church who we want to invite into the church and reveal the gospel to them so that they can understand how good this kingdom is going to be. That's what we're getting into today. So if you want to sum this whole uh, sermon up in one proposition, one sentence is this. We're going to look at three commands for Christ to be central among us so that we reflect his coming kingdom. Three commands for Christ to be central among us so that we reflect his kingdom. That's what we're getting into today. We need Christ to be central over everything we do, which is really well represented by these three commands. And if we do that, we're going to look like the kingdom. And that's amazing. So that's what we're getting into. So let's start with verse 15. Verse 15 is our first command, and it says this. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The first command is let the peace of Christ rule. Now, peace, if you use the word peace nowadays, it's kind of a peaceful word, for lack of a, of a better term. What I mean is it's, it's a little generic. It's a little fluffy. It doesn't really have much bite to it. It's not a powerful word. Peace isn't something that you hear boxers or MMA fighters say very often. But the reality is, in Paul's context, in this ancient world, in Colossae, peace was a powerful word. That's the way one commentator I read said it. Peace was a powerful word. For Gentiles, so that's for people who weren't Jews, the word peace was a reward that the emperor brought home when he defeated other nations. That was the ultimate reward. It was security, it was comfortability, it was pride to be part of the winning nation that won peace. Peace was a treasure the emperor took home when he defeated another nation. But for the Jewish people, it meant something on a bit of a grander scale, and not just a bit, because since they understood God's role in the Old Testament, what God was working towards, they understood that that meant the restoration of the whole world. And specifically, it meant their restoration for the Israelite people. It meant that they were going to be freed from all tyranny, from all the people who oppressed them, from all the people who made them slaves or second-class citizens, and they were going to be on top. So for both Gentiles and Greeks, or sorry, uh, Greeks rather, and Jews, peace was a powerful word. And you need to know that because even when we get into this idea of not just peace, but the peace of Christ, the peace of Christ is even more powerful than both of those things. Because the peace of Christ, as Christ told his disciples in John 14, 27, is not like this world's peace. It is a peace greater than we could ever imagine. It is not a peace that is from the things that are below, and it's not a peace that's only for a particular people. It's not just for the Israelites. This is a peace in which all universal and cosmic wrong will be made right and be made right through Christ. This is the reconciliation of everything. This is what Paul talked about in Colossians 1.20 when he said, I am bringing peace, a reconciliation of everything, and I'm doing it through the cross. It's a peace that he says in Colossians 2.15 is one where he disarmed all de de uh, demonic spirits and all other authorities and has triumphed over them in Christ. That is the peace of Christ. And since we are united to that king, that king who has that kind of peace, that peace has to have power over our church. That's why he uses the word rule. The word rule literally translates as be an umpire. For some of you guys who like baseball, you know what an umpire is. An umpire is kind of like a referee. They keep things on track. And they had umpires in Paul's day as well, and they were the judge over various kinds of competitions. There were people who made sure the game was played according to the rules. They interrupted the game to give penalties when the rules were broken, and they made sure the game stayed on track. And so when Paul says that the peace of Christ is ruling among us, he is saying it is acting as an umpire. As a referee, it is like rule number one in all of your interactions and in all of your fellowship. The question you are asking when you come to the church is how can I make sure that my number one rule in all my behavior and all my interactions is that Christ's peace rules just like it's going to rule in Christ's kingdom that is coming. That is our command. When the peace of Christ rules, you stop putting people down when they do badly in a game and you celebrate with them when they do well, even when it's the other team. 
The peace of Christ means friendships aren't limited to certain kinds of people and has enough courage to say, I want to be a friend to anybody that I can. The peace of Christ means that my behavior is controlled by his peace more than my preferences. The peace of Christ breaks up fights and it comes to the aid of those who are under attack. The peace of Christ seeks to remove any conflict, even at the cost of my own popularity or my privileges. The peace of Christ hates anger, the peace of Christ hates bullying, and it hates intimidation. The peace of Christ reproduces peace in others, and it desires others to be ruled by that peace. Peace creates peace, creates peace. And all of that peace is possible because Christ's peace is powerful. Christ's peace is powerful. Christ's peace is so powerful that it is more powerful than our sin and our selfishness. Living with other believers even can be hard. Living with the world can be difficult. But this command is so powerful that it can even overrule our hearts. Even though we are so sinners, we know Christ died for us and he provided us everything we need for life and godliness. And that means we can be this peaceable. Paul says, indeed, you were called in one body. This is really cool. If you know that you're saved, then you know God called you to himself. He initiated relationship, not us. But what Paul is saying here is he didn't just call you. He called all of us here. He didn't just call you. He called others around you. You have been called by God. You are part of this church, and you are not part of this church by an accident. We are all called into this church because it is part of Christ's plan for you and for everybody around you. And that means his peace is supposed to bless us uniquely based on how he's created you. You have a plan here to specifically reveal the peace of Christ through the kind of personality that God created for you. And the question we want to ask is how? How exactly are we supposed to contemplate what it looks like for the peace of Christ to rule here. The first thing that you need is you need to believe that Christ actually should be on the throne. That's the first thing. If you want Christ's rule, then you will have Christ's peace. But if you don't want Christ's rule, then that means you want to rule and you want a kingdom to look like you. And that's a problem because you are broken. And that means a kingdom would look as broken as you are. If I had a kingdom, it would look as broken as I still am. None of us are going to create a kingdom that is even close, even on the same scale as how good Christ's kingdom is going to be. And because we know that, we want him to rule and we want to follow his plan. And that means since the peace of Christ is going to rule in his kingdom, it has to rule us. It has to be better than what we want. And that means we need to ask ourselves individually, what does it look like for Christ to not just rule our church, but to rule me as a member of this church and to help participate in Christ's plan to rule our entire church? Maybe you lack self-control in your language. Maybe that's the thing that you pray God would have a control of. The reality is he is the king of your heart. You need to go back to the gospel and you need to understand teasing, mean things you say is not what heaven is going to be like. And because you're happy heaven is not going to be like that, then you need to stop being like that. And you need to ask Christ to rule over that area of your life so that you might participate in this kingdom plan. 
Maybe you love friendships more than Christ. I have totally been there. Maybe you're scared that changes and challenges to your group might give you stability because you find more peace in your friendships than Christ. And what you need to do is stop looking at your friendships for the source that only Christ could give you. Only Christ can give you the stability and the love that you are seeking for, and it can create something even better. And cre create you to be a peacemaker, to be the kind of person that can go and make friends that are authentic, that are God-centered, that are Christ-exalting. And those are the kind of friendships that you need. Maybe you're the only, maybe you're only at peace when things are exciting. I was thinking this week how much when I was your guys' age that I just needed an event or a relationship or I needed to figure out who had a crush on who. I had to figure out anything I possibly could to make ordinary life more exciting, and that was how I found my peace. But that gives a kind of vain peace that doesn't last. It does not last. You know, it's not just sin that, like, destroys relationships. It's when relationships are all about you. That destroys things. And it destroys things because it makes us not look like the kingdom. When you understand the real value there are in people, you start looking at them as eternal beings and not just a crush, not just someone who can give you a thrill, not just someone who can give joy to you, but you start thinking of how you can bless them. And that is way better. And that is way deeper because Christ is in it. And it creates real value in the church and it puts real value in people because they're made in God's image. Maybe it's hard for you to find peace at home. Maybe it's hard because of other people. Maybe it's easy to consider all of the ways that people annoy you or their personal preferences affect you or you have to obey rules that you don't want to. But the reality is this. The most powerful thing that the peace of Christ can do for you is this, is to repent. You are not as perfect as you think you are. I am not as perfect as I think I am. But when the peace of Christ rules in your house, and we're actually going to see that over the next three sermons, because Paul thinks it's really important. When the peace of Christ rules in your house, and you bring it to believers in your house, and you want to be someone who cares more about their thriving relationship in Christ than them doing something for you, that's where the kingdom starts to feel real. Like, really, really real. So you need to ask how you are contributing in your own house to the peace of Christ ruling there so that people might see and taste the kingdom. And when you think of those things, when you actually allow the peace of Christ to rule, you get a taste of the kingdom of Christ and you get to give other people a taste of the kingdom. You get to give people a taste of heaven. That should be the most exciting thing for a believer to contemplate ever because it is genuinely amazing. And that's actually why Paul explains this is a command because Christ commands you to walk in the good works that he has called you to. If you call yourself a believer, this command might feel intimidating, but listen, it's possible. That's why it's a command. He never commands us to do impossible things. He has given you the power of his peace, and he wants you to exercise it so this kingdom feels visible in this world. That's the first command, that the peace of Christ would rule in your heart. The second command is verse 16 all of verse 16, and that is that the word of Christ should dwell. Christians are called to let the word of Christ dwell. Verse 16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is just really cool because we don't get to talk about some of these things as often as we can, so hopefully we get to get through some of this stuff. The word dwell literally means to be at home. It means to be content, and it means to be at peace. And it means that all of that stuff would be permanent. It's very similar to our last command. It means that the word of Christ should be comfortable here, that its home is here. It should be here. One pastor said, the peace of Christ rules where the word of God dwells. So this and verse 15 are totally connected to each other. And the word of Christ that he says, the word of Christ that's supposed to be at home here, that is explaining what all of Colossians has been about. You know, he could have said the word of the gospel. He could have said the good news. He could have said any of these things, but he actually didn't describe it that way. He said the word of Christ, and that wasn't by an accident. It's the only time that that phraseology shows up here. And the reason he did that is because he wants to explain that all of the good that God has revealed to his people found its greatest good in Christ. And he wants to make it obvious that we don't forget that. So that everything is going back to the goodness and riches and the treasures of this mystery that has been revealed to us, which is Christ. I love at the end of the Gospel of Luke that we're going through, spoiler alert, probably three years from now, um, in Luke chapter 20, ver- 24, verse 27, Jesus needs to explain this to people. Jesus needs to go to these two men who are sad that Jesus died, thinking that Jesus' plan is ruined. Jesus himself shows up to these two guys, and he says, I need to explain myself to you from the Old Testament. And he does that. Verse 27 says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine having Jesus disciple you through the Old Testament so that you see Jesus? Can you imagine that? That would be probably the greatest thing you could possibly imagine. But one of the really amazing things about this word dwell is that it actually explains you have the next best thing to that, which is that you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit, and that means you have the word of Christ and you accept the word of Christ. And we actually know that because of the word dwell shows up five times in the New Testament, and four of those are referring to the Holy Spirit. The word of Christ can dwell in you richly because the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to accept it and to live by it. And that needs to come out in the church because the word of Christ feels at home here is because it's reminding us where our true home really is, which is heaven. The word of Christ makes this place feel like home. It makes it feel like heaven. In John 14, 2, Jesus said that when he's leaving this world, he is preparing a place for us. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, the only reason I don't want to be dead is because I have ministry, but I'd rather be at home with the Lord. He knows that this place is not our final destination. Our eternal destination is heaven, and that is for everyone who accepts the gospel. And we want this church to look as much like that as possible. So Paul explains how. Paul explains how this place looks like heaven. He says it in three ways. We teach one another, we admonish one another, and we sing with one another. Now, two of these we've actually covered before, and I don't blame you if you don't remember, because it was all the way back in Colossians 1.28. Teaching is like positive teaching, like walking somebody through who Christ is and reminding each other that all reality and all meaning is found in him and helping explain that Christ has given us everything to navigate through life. It's the positive part. 
And then admonishment is usually the negative part. It's like the correcting. It's like saying, hey, you're off the road, and I, it's awkward to correct you, but I want you back on the road towards Christ. So I have to point out a sin in your life. I have to point out something you're doing wrong because I care about you. Teaching and admonishing with the word of Christ is how the word of Christ dwells here and makes this place feel like heaven. And the third thing that he mentions is singing. And that's what's pretty awesome because we don't get to talk about singing very much. But Paul mentions singing. Singing's always been valued and loved and appreciated at every point of history. I was thinking this week that besides maybe storytelling and maybe gathering food, singing is probably one of the oldest habits of people in community. Maybe one of the oldest things ever. Even in our world now where we have so many other things, we have YouTube and we have Spotify, I'm amazed how many people I can talk to and one of their highlights of the year is going to a concert. Because music together is special. And music together for believers is extra special for a very obvious reason, which is that the most beautiful news in the world should be expressed in a beautiful way. And that's why we sing, because it's a creative thing that God has given us to use back to him so that we have two things together. We have our emotions and we have truth. And one of the amazing ways that they meet and come together in our hearts is through music. It's through taking the word of God and putting it to song that God created and singing truth so that our emotions can match the majesty that we have in the gospel. It's one of the big reasons why we sing together. It's such a beautiful way to express not only the truth of God, but the passion that we have and want to have for God. And then Paul explains how that actually happens. What's the thing? How, what exactly in the word of God, Christ are we talking about? And he gets a little bit more specific. He mentions that that stuff happens through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, psalms is literally the book of psalms. Psalms are actually sung in many other churches. Me and Ashley got to visit a church in San Francisco one time, and they sang psalms. And at first it felt really awkward because it was very rigid and you had to find the place. But as you start meditating on the truth and hearing everybody else know the songs, you started realizing how beautiful these biblical truths are when they're set to music. It's a totally different way to understand these things. And then we have hymns. And hymns isn't just like, okay, a song gets 100 years old and it's officially a hymn. It's not like an old song. A hymn is specifically something that is right from scripture and it is made into a song. One thing that's really interesting is if you look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that section about how Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that was actually an ancient hymn during Paul's day, apparently. They actually made that into a hymn because it was beautiful and they wanted to express it in a beautiful way. And then we have spiritual songs. If you want to ask what a spiritual song is, raise your hand if you remember when Marty came and sang that song before Roots started. A couple of you guys remember? That's a spiritual song. What that means is that spiritual is referring to the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that there'd be so much love over the truth in someone's heart that it would just naturally come out and they would start singing. That's probably what spiritual songs refer to. It's the beauty of this truth just erupting spontaneously from someone. But when all these three things are together, what Paul is really trying to summarize is what worship is. Specifically musical worship, but worship. Part of what worship is musically is taking musical forms, directly quoting scripture or summarizing biblical truth and using them in such a way that they give us a taste of heaven. And they make us want to be in heaven and they make us want to live like citizens of heaven right now. 
Now, if you're actually reading this, if you look at like directly at your text in verse 16, it kind of looks like it says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are things we sing. If you look at your verse in 16, it says we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what many of your texts say. But if you actually look at the grammar, it seems like psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are actually more connected to teaching and admonishing. You know, it'd be weird for me to come up and instead of like preaching a sermon, I would just like read Amazing Grace or I would just read My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. But Paul is trying to get at that point. When you participate in worship, it's not just a ritual that makes God happy with you or it makes your parents happy with you because you're participating. It is actually something God gave you to give him glory that you would recognize his glory and want to give him glory. It is a way to obey God, but it's a way that God has still given a gift to you so you can passionately love his glory. He organized the church in such a way that even doing musical worship would teach you and it would correct you, and we sing it. I was trying to think this week, and I I thought of something that I'd forgotten for a long time. I remembered when I was in seminary, and I was in chapel. We had it on Tuesdays and Thursdays before lunch, and one of the things we did in chapel and seminary is we sang together. And I remember this buddy of mine was behind me singing, and he was from a European country. I mean, he had a really thick accent, and it made it hard for him to find the pitch of a song. So when we were singing, he was basically like talking really, really loudly. And I remember being so distracted by it. It was brutal. And I remember just like almost praying because I was just in such a selfish mode, being annoyed. I was like, dude, can you like worship outside? Or can you just like take a break uh, just to give us this thing? And I naturally, I wasn't going to correct him, but I just naturally turned around just to look at him. And when I looked back, he had these big, fat, honest tears just streaming down his face fully outstretched and just totally absorbed in how amazing it is to have a relationship with Christ. I literally can't even think about it too long before crying. But the reason I was thinking about it is because all three of those things happened in that moment. We were singing together, but he was taking the truths of his life and the gospel, and God was literally teaching him something in that moment, and I was being admonished. I was being corrected. I was being proven how selfish I was. And all of that happened not through preaching, through musical worship. That's what Paul is getting at. Music and worship is a way for you to bless God, but it's also a way that God has organized the church so you can be blessed. God is so good. He has given us so many gifts, and he especially loves it when his truth is declared that we would be blessed knowing how amazing his kingdom is going to be, how amazing heaven is going to be. Listen to some of these psalms that I found about the psalmist trying to set those truths to music. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 84, 10 says, A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know what they're talking about? What they're actually talking about is the end of verse 16. What they're actually talking about is having thankfulness in their hearts to God. That's what they're talking about. 
our worship comes from thankfulness that glorifies Jesus for his constant redirection of us away from the world and towards heaven. And that changes the way we live. I think Sinclair Ferguson asked a great question when he was thinking about this. He said this, what is the word of Christ in your life? Is it an occasional visitor? Is it an alien? Is it a permanent resident? Because the Christian prayer to God is, God, let your word run anywhere in my life. Now, maybe your application of this sermon is, I just need to get a Spotify playlist with more Christian songs on it. Maybe it's for you to not echo the words when we're singing together, but to actually sing them out loud to see if Christ is going to teach you something in that moment. Maybe it's to sit back and observe what God is doing through corporate singing because those of us who've tasted and seen Christ, we live for Sunday morning. We live for it. It's not because it's a ritual. It's because we get a taste of what heaven is going to be like. And so whatever it is, we need to see how God has organized worship to glorify him and to bless you and to benefit you to actually point you away from yourself and towards him. To point you away from how this world is fading away and how we are going towards a heavenly home that is so much better than this world. So our community needs to live for Christ's kingdom. The first command to do that is to let the peace of Christ rule. The second command to do that is to let the word of Christ dwell through teaching, admonishing, and singing. And then he finally gets to the third command, which is this. The third command is we must do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 17. Do everything in the name of Jesus. Verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is what this doesn't mean. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus is a magic word you say, as if you had a wand and you say a specific word, and then Jesus gets glory. I was thinking of like Harry Potter, expelliarmus, and then something happens. So it's not like I do a good work and I say Jesus, and then it blesses God. That's not what this word is talking about. What this is talking about is that since Christ is God, and God has invited us into a perfect eternal home, the name of Christ deserves glory in everything we do. It deserves glory in everything we do. His name is who Christ is. It's what he represents. It's what he's owed. So this command says, do everything for Christ's glory. Do everything from a heart that wants Christ to be here now. We've had a taste of him. We know he's real. We know he's reigning over us, but we want to see him. That's what life is about, and that changes everything we do to be done in order to glorify Christ. And Paul stresses that like crazy in this verse. He does it at least three ways. First of all, he says, whatever you do, which means in anything you could possibly do, do it for Christ. And then he says in word or deed, which means the things you say and the things you do, which is literally all of life. All of life is things you say and things you do. And then finally he says everything. So he's making it clear. What I'm talking about is everything to top it all off. Now this is what I want you to see, okay? Do you think that's possible? Do you think you can do everything in the name of Jesus Christ? Because when I was thinking about it, I was like, that's not possible. Why would God command us to do something that's apparently impossible? We're not perfect. We're not sinners. Why is this a command? But Paul is stressing, this is definitely a command. You definitely need to obey this. This is what life is about. 
think the point he's making is, look at the end of this verse in verse 17. Look at it in your Bible. He says, giving thanks to the Father through him. That's the third time thankfulness showed up in this passage. Thankfulness is everything for the Christian. Thankfulness is what we live by. It is our motivation for everything because we can be thankful for Christ in everything, in our ups and downs, in suffering or in joy, in good times and hard times, we can be thankful. Actually, technically, this is our fourth command because back in verse 15, he says, be thankful, and that is a command, and that means to become thankful, to be a person whose identity, whose name is thankfulness. Christ's kingdom is coming, we are connected to him, and he is giving us the power to fight sin and discover who we are made to be, and that should be so amazing that everything we want to do, we want to do for Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. And that means Christ can't be separated from anything you do. Christ can't be in a corner of your room in a box while you do something else. You should ask yourself, if I ever don't want Christ to be around, he can't be separate from our friendships, from TV and movie watching, from playing sports, from our homework, from video game playing. We can't ever not want him there because think about what that means. Think about the logic you're assuming if you don't want Christ to see what you're doing or you want to do something not for Christ. Christ is always going to be present in heaven. Think about that. Christ is always going to be present in heaven. And that's what makes heaven amazing. So if he's always going to be present in heaven, why do you want him not present in anything you do now? That is totally against what we know where we find joy is. Everything. Christ knows and teaches Christians that everything joyful leads to himself Everything purposeful leads to himself. So make everything about him. Make everything about loving him and getting deeper into him and finding passion of him. Because if not, you're actively going down a road that eventually leads to hell. Which is separation from Christ. And Christ does not want that. The desire of Christ is that you would understand that you were created to glorify him. And he wants that to happen forever. That's why this command exists. Because all good comes from Christ, and so we give him all glory. And if you understand that about Christ's kingdom, you understand why we even talk about obedience in the first place. Because when we think about Christ and the kingdom, we're thankful, and all obedience comes from thankfulness, real obedience. All obedience comes from thankfulness. It comes from an explanation, whether I actively know or don't actively know, that anything I do that obeys God is for his glory and for my good. And that means obedience is what I do. We become disobedient when we become unthankful. And when we become unthankful, when we don't want the kingdom. What Paul has been trying to explain is that there is something better in this world. And when you get to actively work out the commands of Christ that he's explained here in this text, you get a taste of the kingdom because you're doing what the kingdom is gonna be like. In Christ's kingdom, peace is gonna reign. 
with all of the things going on in our world right now, we should know how amazing it would be if peace actually reigned. And it is going to reign in Christ's kingdom. In Christ's kingdom, the word of Christ will dwell. There will only be worship always. Not just musically, but in everything we do. We will actively be glorifying God and living real lives. And that's because Christ is going to be there. We won't just need his word. He will be there. And in Christ, everything is going to be named. Everything is going to be done for the name of Christ. Because that's what makes life worth living. That is what we were designed to do. So as we're looking about this today, we're not just trying to figure out how can I make sense of my life? How can I find organization in the chaos? We're just trying to figure out where we're going. I was thinking today, I don't know if you've ever seen a rocket ship take off, but it's terrifying. Um, someone described it to me once. It's like literally seeing a nuclear bomb going off and wondering why is this happening? But it's all organized. It's all happening for a reason. It's a lot of chaos and loudness and explosive, but everything is going exactly where it's supposed to go. And the rocket is actually heading where it's supposed to go. When we're actually in moments that feel absolutely chaotic, where we don't understand obedience, where we find it hard to find thankfulness, what we're supposed to be thinking is, are we going where we're supposed to be going? And Christ is in charge of that, and he's promised that. He has made all order in the chaos, and he's going to reveal that perfectly one day when his kingdom comes, when we see him face to face, and we will recognize how worthy he was of all our glory. So we want to pray that we obey these commands because we are expectant of his kingdom. And in the next couple weeks, we're actually going to see how that just doesn't happen as we think how to apply these things, but that happens in our households because God cares about our houses and he cares about our homes and he cares about our relationships and he cares about receiving glory when we fulfill the roles that he's given us so that's going to be next week before we get there let's pray father you are good and you do good we have tasted and seen that you are good we don't just want to be people who um, like your rules, and we think that they're beneficial, and so we obey them. We want to obey your commandments because they give us a taste of your kingdom. We want to live like kingdom citizens now. So please, Lord, wake us up to the spiritual reality of your coming kingdom. Wake us up to know that life with you is better than any life we could design or we could imagine. Help us understand that seeing you, loving you, walking with you is what all of life is about. We want to worship you. We want to praise you. We want to be overwhelmed um, with you. Now help us to fight sin. Help us to love one another. Help the peace of Christ uh, to rule over all of our relationships. Help us to understand that we'll never earn this gift of heaven. Uh, we're never going to be good enough for you but we want to be obedient out of thankfulness because you have purchased heaven for us. You will keep us on the road. And so just give us a sight of you that we might focus on you and love you. You are eternally good and we want to be eternally grateful. So help us, Lord, to walk in your commandments that we might constantly overflow with the love of the fullness you have provided for us in your son Christ. And we pray all these things in your matchless name.
Amen. Thank you, guys.